This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Melbourne bands, milk there, wishing treats, 10 past four, you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Nikki Neville-Jones is the director of the Laramie Project, which explores the death, the hate crime death of Matthew Shepard in Wyoming in 1998. And uh, Nikki joins us on the line. Welcome to 3CR, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me, James. Tell us what happened to Matthew Shepard in 1998. Yeah, sure. So uh, in 1998, uh, Matthew Shepard was studying at a university in uh, Laramie in Wyoming in the US. Um, He was a pretty active vocal student. He was uh, overtly um, a gay student. Um, He was involved in sort of the various communities um, in Laramie at the time. And um, unfortunately, he was the victim of... Uh, what it, what we now say um, certainly uh, of a hate crime, um, where he, whereby he was murdered by two also young. They were he was 21 years old, and they were almost similar age um, Laramie residents who um, they met at a pub, oh, well essentially like a bar in Laramie, and uh, drove him out to a field where they. Um, beat him, and it was. I mean, I won't go into too many details, but let's just say it was pretty. It was pretty horrendous, and um, unfortunately, he died not long after they discovered him the next day um, in the hospital. To what extent do you think it's accurate to say that Matthew Shepard's death became a, a catalyst for the concept of the gay hate crime being conceivable to the average American? Um, I think it's. I think it's kind of in the American psyche that Matthew Shepard really was one of the... There was, a, there was actually another victim around a similar time that um, but he was sort of forced, first and foremost uh, started the the conversation, if you like, about this idea of hate crime and how it's dealt with in the law and why it's important that we um, look at murders and look at crimes that are sort of obviously motivated by hate Um whether whatever for whatever reason is that's race or sexuality, um, and certainly as I say, it began the dialogue. And at the time in in Laramie, there was there was nothing like it um, by way of hate crime, and the perpetrators certainly weren't um, brought to justice under any hate crime laws. So, um, and uh, and uh, in terms of you know where the U.S. then went, um, uh, President Obama about 10 years later, um, actually brought in what's now considered to be or colloquially called the Matthew Shepard um, legislation, which was all about hate crime and um, and legislating these types of crimes. What do you think it was about Matthew that made his death the catalyst, if you like, uh, for LGBTIQ civil rights, not just in America, but kind of around the world insofar as the modern-day civil rights are concerned, you know, the whole kind of, you know, impetus that led to marriage equality, for example. Mm. Why was Matthew so important, do you think? What what singled him out? I think, I mean, I think you've got to look at the not only the crime itself, because the crime itself was so horrendous. So um, you take that, I mean, it, it has all the characteristics of something that someone picking up the newspaper or whatever would would find horrible. Um, and then the fact that it, it was motivated um, by hate, 
um, obviously just had such an effect. And then the other thing, I think, just because looking at the victim, Matthew, um, and who he was and the fact that he was openly gay and there was he had such a promising life ahead of him, um, I think those two coupled together just really hit the American, as I say, the American psyche pretty hard. Um, uh, combined with, um, ultimately, the, the production that we're about to put on, um, the Laramie Project, um, and uh, the flow-through, I think, from what's come of this project and this uh, production being performed a couple of years after the murder. Yes, the play was written by Moses Kaufman and members of New York City's Tectonic Theatre Project, and they actually travelled to, to Laramie in the aftermath uh, of Matthew's death, and they undertook extensive research for this play, The Laramie Project. Can you tell us about the work that they undertook that led to this creation happening? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like most Americans at the time, they obviously heard about Matthew and they heard about the crime and um, were shocked. Uh, and so they decided as a theatre company um, to travel down to Laramie. Um, and they, I, I don't think at the beginning they really knew what they were going to walk away with in terms of uh, an artistic or creative piece, but they they... They went there and they started these interviews, interviewing the townspeople of Laramie, um, locating transcripts from the court, uh, from the court cases, speaking to the professionals that dealt with um, the crime in terms of the coppers and the uh, the hospital um, and the medical staff that dealt with him when he came to the hospital after the evening when he was beaten. And I think just from that they realised that they just had this amazing uh, medium to create a play and put it all together. And they just have done it so well um, in that the way it's crafted is so powerful uh, and also deals with um, all these issues, particularly hate crime and human rights, and um, in a way that makes the audience think um, but in a creative way, so in, in one in one aspect, you could say that the audience is entertained, although um, obviously in a um, in a poignant way. The imagery around Matthew's death, if you like, um, is incredibly crucifixion-like, almost, isn't it? You know, with that wooden fence uh, and the way the fence mm. was was made that he was left to basically die on. Um, you know, it was almost like a crucifixion. Now, does your yeah. play actually? tap into that how do you how do you how do you depict the imagery of Matthew's death yeah so I was quite conscious for my production of making Matthew as real as possible I think the reality is is that you know Matthew was a real person we see in the play we hear about people that knew Matthew that were friends with Matthew talk about this young American um, student and so I think for me it was actually important to really focus on Matthew as a person and in some ways sort of stay uh, move away from that ideal a little bit only because I think if we know Matthew as a person in some ways I think it's just more emotionally affecting um, but certainly uh, in our production as with all previous Laramie productions I'm sure the fence you can't get away from the imagery of the fence and we've certainly used it as hopefully a powerful symbol of Matthew and um, and when the fence is on the stage sometimes and Matthew obviously is not there it's almost uh, I've certainly directed that the actors kind of are looking at the fence as though they were looking and recalling Matthew being there and so I think that's particularly powerful but um, that coupled with Matthew being as I say a real person and um, because this was a real crime. 
Do you feel like you know Matthew well? I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question because, of course, you must feel that. You must have an incredible emotional connection to him as a character, directing actors to, to you know, explore his death. Um, what kind of feelings do you have about Matthew and what kind of person do you think he was? I think that, I think with, I mean, a lot of crimes as well, I think it is important to be aware of the circumstances of the the murder and then also the person. I mean, I think, as I said before, obviously, Matthew, we we get from the play and even just my experience with this production, learning more about Matthew, um, even speaking to people from the Matthew Shepherd Foundation in the US. um, Recently, we had a little dialogue with them. Um, Our actors were lucky enough to speak to them. Um, I think, uh, I mean, he was obviously an amazing person and I think that's definitely come through in the play. What his was personality. Like? What was his personality? Like? He was, I think he was an outgo. I mean, one of the things one of the actors says, one of the characters in the play, um, Romaine, um, who knew Matthew, talks about how, you know, he would just talk to anyone. I mean, if he was in the bar, in the fireside bar, which is where he was the night, unfortunately, um, he met his fate. Um, you know, this idea of like, well, if anyone came up to speak to him, of course he would he would speak back because that's just Matthew. Um, so I think that element, I mean, it, it just makes it all the, the uh, more sad because of the way I think he was. I think he was a lovely person at the end of the day and I think that is one of the reasons why he it became a watershed moment for the US because we're talking about this young American who's sort of at the beginning of so many things that he was going to do and... It was all taken away, unfortunately. So tell us how the Laramie project, the play, is structured. Is there a character, Matthew Shepard, for example? So there isn't a character. I mean, I think certainly, um, and I won't give too much away in terms of our specific production, but there's certainly a a creative element that Matthew is kind of there, as I say, certainly through the fence and other kind of mediums that you can do creatively. So it's like a spirit Um, almost. It's like... um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, as I say, uh, in terms of our production, I hope that that kind of um, creative process or what we've done with that and with Matthew comes across uh, in the way it's certainly intended. But Matthew, I mean, Matthew is in there in, in, in the writing anyway, particularly when you hear of people that have uh, knew Matthew or a family of Matthew. He's there uh, present on stage even when he's not physically there. Um, but otherwise, I think, yeah, there's certainly creative elements and I've certainly, um, it's allowed me to kind of, create that space where Matthew is sort of, is there, I guess, as you say, is sort of a spirit. So tell us about the characters in the play and the actors who play them. Yeah, sure. So we have, I mean, there were over 200 transcripts that were accessed by the Technonic Theatre Company when um, they went to Laramie and started the process of creating the Laramie Project. Each actor plays, uh, you know, upwards of 10 characters. Um, they There's about 60 characters in the actual production um, in the play. They're there on stage the whole time, save for the interval, all the actors, um, and they will jump into various characters throughout the play. Um, the characters themselves, uh, as I say, they're either people that knew Matthew, they're townspeople in Laramie. Um, as I say, they're not all pro um, 
hate crime legislation, and uh, there's certainly there's a certainly conservative elements there, which kind of in some ways can be quite confronting and offensive. But I mean, that's that's also the point is that it it is so real to have that dialogue um, and to hear the various kind of perspectives of the crime. Um, and then there's also the in the actual play there's a court there's court scenes where we actually hear you know the judge reading out the evidence and um, sentencing the perpetrators um, in uh, the aspects that they or how they are sentenced ultimately and uh, we also hear from the you know the police that found Matthew. Uh, that uh, the when he was discovered and the doctor that treated him. So it's just it's an array of characters, and as I say, it's a very big challenge for the actors as well. Absolutely. So you have you have like six actors playing ten people. Yeah. So we well we have eight actors, and um, we have four female and four male. Um, they're certainly they sent uh, they all play varied characters, varied ages. Um, the uh, certainly in terms of my casting, it was more casting and on based on the ability, if that makes sense, rather than the look of the actor. Because they can't change costume, can they? They're they're basically on the stage the whole exactly. time, and they're, they're yeah. flip flopping. So they must have to draw on emo- uh, emotional depths. Yeah, uh, and great right. acting skills because they can't really rely on anything else. No, but, that's right. Look, it's, I mean, I, my background is acting as well, and I think it, it, it would be a challenge to, for me as if I was in the play. It's a very challenging play for the actors, and the actors are all um, doing an amazing job. And, uh, and I think in terms of the acting process, it was important for us to focus on uh, the play overall and how that's going to work, given that they're jumping from character to character. But also my focus was um, on making sure that each character they portray is, is kind of real and has a character arc and an objective and all those kind of active things that are just really important, particularly when you're, you're playing so many characters. And, of course, your play is such a treat for LGBTIQ theatre lovers because we've just had Midsummer. And that's over, so people are going through the post-Midsummer Blues, and now all of a sudden uh, you've got this queer play starting up. Um, that's yeah, incredible. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I think it was very – I mean, I think the timing and um, and, and particularly at the moment, um, I don't know if your listeners are aware, but, you know, we don't have crime legislation in Victoria. Um, we actually have someone from Equality Australia speaking on the first night, on opening night, um, a human rights lawyer, Lee Carney, um, about hate crime and uh, hate legislation and uh, all those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a it's a pretty hard hitting play, but there's uh, there's a lot there for the LGBTI community as well. Did it surprise you that you know, um, 21 years after the death of? of Matthew Shepard or just over 20 years after his death that we don't actually have LGBTIQ hate crimes legislation in Victoria when Victoria is seen as this progressive state with this progressive government. They've been in power over four years. We don't Mm. have that legislation. Did that surprise you? It actually did surprise me, and to be honest, I mean, I certainly wanted to put on Laramie, I wanted Bottle Snail to put on Laramie because of the, the... the play it is, and because of the issues and the legal, the legal, the legal issues as well. But it, I wasn't actually aware of that that we didn't um, before I started looking into producing Laramie and um, putting it on. So, and then I actually contacting, as I say, well, they were the Human Rights Law Centre, they're now Equality Australia, and funnily enough, they produced a report at the end of last year, which was recommending that we bring in hate crime, so uh, legislation. So, yeah, it look, I mean, it's it's pretty astounding, particularly because uh, anecdotes that I've heard since 
being involved in this project is that in America it's just so part of their uh, law, their legal culture, hate crime now. It's just a given and it's something that's taken very seriously and if a hate crime potentially has been committed, for example, a murder, they'll have like a special unit that deals with it separate to normal, say, murders and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, as you say, it's uh, very different to um, where we are in Melbourne and Victoria at the moment. So, Nikki, you found yourself basically doing an activist play with a with a pertinent and current kind of activist issue without even realising it must be meant to be. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And and as of last year, it was 20 years um, since Matthew Shepard's death. So it was sort of, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's one of those things they, um, you start the process and all of a sudden all these things come out of the woodwork, which are just so positive and amazing. And I think it just makes me feel um, even, you know, more warm and fuzzy about this production because I think that we're using it now for a vehicle for all these other issues and, uh, and um, elements which are also important. So give us the details so people can rock along to the Laramie Project. Yeah, so we open um, next Thursday on the 21st of February and that opening night is 7pm because, as I say, we do have a guest speaker and then otherwise it's 7.30pm Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that weekend and then the following weekend as well. Um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the Saturday we close is the 2nd of March um, at Chapel Off Chapel and you can get tickets just on their website. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me, James. It's a great pleasure. Cheers. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. Dandy Warhol's there. The following interview is anonymous and explores the experiences of an Arab queer woman who will be speaking at Queer Stories. Uh, Here in Melbourne on the 20th of February, we respect her right to privacy and safety and empowerment. Uh, And uh, really, empowerment's all about why we're telling this story. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Let's start with Queer Stories, which you'll be speaking at. Tell Tell us about the event. Um, it's an excellent event hosted and programmed by Maeve Marsden. Um, it's an LGBTQI uh, storytelling night um, that happens regularly in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and um, now even regional towns in Australia, which is fantastic. Um, the event I'm speaking at is happening this Wednesday on the 20th, and there are a few tickets left. So um, if you'd like to get a few tickets... You can find them on moshticks.com.au. And if you'd like to support Maeve and the LGBTQI community also, you can buy the book and you can find it, uh, the book titled Queer Stories, and you can find it on booktopia.com. And the podcast also is an excellent um, platform. If you miss out on the events and you want to listen to the stories, you can download the podcast and listen to them at your leisurely time. So tell us about the story that you will share. Um, it's This is actually my first time um, speaking about my story and my sexuality in a public um, in a public platform. I haven't done this before, so it's um, it's quite interesting and it's been um, weighing on my mind since last year. I, I attended one of these events last year and I was like, oh, maybe it's time for me to go on. Uh, queer stories and start telling my story because I um, I haven't like um, 
like there are many diverse voices um, on um, on the events, and I and I and that and I felt that I probably need to add my voice and my story, um, sort of, to enrich the understanding of um, Muslim queer Muslims and Arabs in Australia. So the timing's right for you. Yeah, it felt right, and it felt like a safe platform for me to um, to come and tell my story. Every time I've gone to one of these events, I have felt um, so much acceptance and um, support from the people who attend it. And um, it's yeah, it feels more like a, it's more than a community. I felt right at home attending these events. First of all, I see all my friends there and um, a lot of um, familiar faces I see in, um, in you know, queer communities. And, um, of course, I was terrified before I, I went on stage to tell my story. But then as soon as I got up there and, um, and started telling my story, I felt, I felt really empowered. Um, and it was, it was a quite, uh, it was, um, intoxicating actually being on stage i'm not a public speaker so it felt really awesome being on there and telling my story to my community and feeling safe and um embraced also by them so it sounds like by getting up on stage you've kind of um experienced the um the cementing if you like of your attachment to the lgbtiq community and uh as we said before the empowerment must have felt amazing to be on that stage and 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 connecting with your community about your own story about your own very very own private heartfelt stuff it just must have been so powerful tell us about the kinds of things that you talked about um i i talked about a few things i've talked about my experience um for example, when I lived abroad in a Western country and um, my boyfriend, you know, one of my boyfriends, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on, on radio, but um, maybe I shouldn't. Um, maybe you should come to my story and listen to it. But I talk about uh, uh, my experiences when I thought I was heterosexual and um, the funny encounters with my boyfriend. Um, I also talk about my um, experiences in Sydney and how um, I basically, um, I, I kind of evolved from seeing myself as a lesbian to seeing myself as genderqueer and, um, and, or, or just queer and how my, um, personality has evolved through, throughout the years. Tell us about that moment when you first realized that you weren't heterosexual. So my coming out story. Um, I don't know. It was it was actually it it was literally a moment because I was um, kind of I don't know how much I can tell you without like revealing um, a lot about my personal life. But um, I feel like I've I've had I known had I had the chance to live in a society um, that is less conservative than my Muslim Arab, uh, community, I would have discovered much earlier that I was interested in girls, for example, um, because I was told not to mix with boys. I was told not to, um, meeting boys was a big taboo and I'm, you know, I was born a rebel. So I, all I wanted to do is just meet boys. <laughs> 
Um, so had I had had it not been a big issue, boys, I might have discovered much earlier or when I was younger that I was a little um, um, a little more queer than straight. <laughs> you must have kind of felt every time you heard somebody else's queer story, because it sounds like you've gone along to the events before, every time you heard someone's story, that just brought you closer to telling your own. Um, was there any story that you did hear that kind of, you know, was 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 the one where you kind of felt yourself thinking and feeling, yeah, I'm going to do this too? Yeah, actually, um, I, my first queer story, I went to see um, a, well, she's a friend now, but I didn't know her before I went. Her name is Kelly Azizi, um, a, a person I know in Sydney, and I went to specifically to see her, and then when I went to see her story, I was I was quite imp- I was quite moved and impressed, and I was like, oh my god, like I really want to be on there. Um, there's a few other stories I can't recall them by name. I should have um, put put them in my notes, but there's a lot of amazing stories from example, for example, from the indigenous community, from the trans community. Um, there are stories that. Um, there are some stories that are really funny and they take you to places and there's others that, you know, just keep <laughs> like hit, uh, uh, hit you on a very personal and, and human nerve. Um, I guess for me, when I, when I was writing my story, um, it's funny because when I, when I went to the first event, I, I came back home and I, I written my story without even telling, um, Maeve that without pitching it to anyone or, or without telling anyone because I, I write a lot of notes and I, I write a lot about my experiences um, and and I, I I didn't uh, I didn't write the whole thing but I wrote most of it and I'm like oh my god I can do this I want to do this and but then when I started crafting it I was like oh well I can't really tell a soft story because I have a lot of soft stories but I wanted it to be a little funny so I tried to inject a little bit of humor with a little bit of you know reality and um yeah it, it, it was it was quite empowering and then after I, I finished my first queer story I texted Maeve the next day telling her asking her is it too soon to <laughs> to pitch a new story or to tell my story again <laughs> um and that's how I got the gig in Melbourne she said oh um well you can pitch a new story next year but you can um do the same one in Melbourne so this is the one coming up so I hope people who are listening can come and listen to them the lineup is fantastic, and the lineups are always fantastic at Queer Stories, so um, I hope to see people there too. So tell us about the lineup. Who else will be speaking uh, next week here in Melbourne? Oh, my God. Okay, so um, I can get it up for you. I don't have it. Um, queer Stories, one second. Um Oh, tell God. us about, tell us about, I know you can't go into the details about much of your own story, but tell us about the emotional resonance of your story. What kind of emotions um, come up for you when you, when you, when you read it back or, or, or when you practice delivering it? Oh, when I practice delivering it, the, the, I changed my ending a little bit. Um, and then when I changed it, um, I think I, cried the first time I read it out loud because it was 
it was very personal and it it felt it felt like something I would write in my diary um and I felt safe to say it that way because I I I knew that was it was a safe space and um the people in the crowd would understand and respond to it um and yeah so it, it did bring up a lot of emotions but then when I when I'm like all right I can't cry on stage because it's it's meant to be a little lighthearted um I kept on reading it over and over again to get the emotions out of it so it becomes like a performance and um yeah so it it was a bit emotional um writing it and practicing it and then telling it was like a whole different level of um empowerment that I have not felt before. The role of the audience at Queer Stories sounds incredibly significant. They're not just a a regular audience. There's a lot of responsibility that goes with their role in in being there. Um, Absolutely. What's it like, you know? um, What's the audience like? What have you found the audiences to be like? Because they're not, they obviously must be aware of that responsibility too. Um, I guess, I guess people in my community are hungry to hear their own stories told on stage. Um, and that's part of the appeal for me because I, I go to these stories um, thinking and wanting to hear something that I can relate to. Um, and although we're all from different places and all different walks of life, all different, um, you know, we're, we're quite diverse within our community. There is always something that we can come together and agree about um and i found the audience to be um quite embracing and and quite generous in in the way they respond to stories so if it's funny they 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 laugh if it's if it if it requires a stand innovation um they do it if it requires um a response that's um um you know that's encouraging they respond they've responded to everything honestly i didn't expect the response the response of the audience to be um that positive like i knew i would i would i would be a little funny <laughs> um but i didn't expect all that much laughter from people so i it, it was you're right like the, there there is a responsibility that comes from the crowd because if I didn't feel embraced or loved or encouraged or that the audience are are having fun, I would probably not have had the same experience. It would have not felt um, as empowering. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The, the crowd plays um, uh, like a crucial, a vital role in empowering the people on the stage as well. Yeah, that's an excellent observation, yes. <laughs> so tell us the details, when and where. How can people get our tickets? Um, all right. So the tickets are available on moshticks.com. Um, there are, they usually sell out in the, in the last week. So they're selling out and there's only a few tickets left. So go to moshticks.com.au and you can listen to the podcast. Uh, on queer uh, the Queer Stories podcast, and you can also buy the book from Booktopia.com. The book is a collection of 26 stories, um, uh, of 26 of these stories that um, Maeve Watson put together. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been wonderful chatting with you. I feel really privileged that we've connected, and uh, best of luck next week.
Oh, thank you so much. I hope to see you there too. <laughs> I hope to be there. Thank you so much. No, no worries. Bye-bye. Yes, Queer Stories next Wednesday. Uh, go along, check it out. Uh, a wonderful project of Maeve Marsden. It is our uh, four minutes to five. I am out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday Rave. Don't forget, this 3CR subscriber drive. We'd love you to subscribe. Go to 3cr.org.au. Taking us out is Milk, and this track's called Praise. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.